Welcome to a special episode of Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government, law, and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. When we think about lawyers, we typically think of courtroom warriors, combatants for a jury support when the big chips are down. In fact, most lawyers rarely face a jury. The ones that do are a special high-status breed, called into battle over liberty or big dollars. And within that rare breed is a very select few, perhaps 100 or fewer in the country, of trial lawyers recognized throughout the profession as the most accomplished and skilled at what they do. They are the high-octane luminaries about whom other lawyers tell odd stories touting their courtroom prowess. Three of them are with us today for a special discussion of the trial lawyer's art. And they are Leslie Caldwell. Leslie was most recently a partner at Latham & Watkins, where she specialized in white collar and internal investigations. She previously served as assistant U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of New York and later chief of the criminal division and chief of the securities fraud section at the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Northern District of California. Leslie was director of the Justice Department's Enron Task Force, for which she received the Attorney General's Award for Exceptional Service. In 2014, Leslie was appointed as Assistant Attorney General for the Criminal Division of the Department, where she served until 2017. Leslie, thank you for joining this special episode of Talking Feds. Happy to be here, and thanks for asking. Barry Burke, a partner at Kramer Levin, As most everyone knows, he served as chief impeachment counsel to the U.S. House of Representatives in the first impeachment trial of the president. And his cross-examination of Corey Lewandowski, which left Lewandowski on life support, was described as, quote, a cross-examination that should be mandatory viewing for every law student in the history of time (laughs) by Slate Magazine. Before joining Kramer Levin, Barry was a trial lawyer with the Federal Defender's Office for the Southern District of New York. He co-authored the textbook, The Practice of Federal Criminal Law, Prosecution and Defense, and he has taught criminal law and professional responsibility at NYU School of Law. Barry Burke, thank you so much for rejoining Talking Fits. Harry, it's a pleasure to be here, especially to be in such great company. And Lisa Wayne, the Executive Director of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. Prior to her appointment, Lisa was an attorney in private practice in both state and federal courts and a Colorado state public defender. She taught trial advocacy at the University of Colorado for 22 years. She continues to serve on the faculty at the Trial Practice Institute at Harvard Law School, the National Criminal Defense College, and Cardozo Law School. In 2005, she received the NACDL's most prestigious honor, the Robert J. Heaney Award. Lisa, thank you very much for joining this episode. And I am very happy to be here with you all. All right. I want to start with a few general questions and to spare you the um, embarrassment. Let's make these not about (laughs) you personally, but about others that you regard as great trial lawyers So when I talk to trial lawyers and ask what their secret sauce is, whatever, first, there's always the I work so hard, harder than everyone. I think trial lawyers really do all work like dogs. So what makes, in your view, for an exceptional trial lawyer? Are great trial lawyers born or made? I would say both. You know, some people are just natural showmen, and you can sort of learn that. But that, I think, is also something semi-innate. 
But you can certainly learn by watching others and doing trials what things work and what things don't work. So I think it's a combination of both. But some people clearly just have the talent, just like some people have the talent to be professional athletes or professional actors. But you do have to work really hard, just like you do with those other things. And I agree with all of that. But I do think the best trial lawyers are true to themselves. So there are some that are going to be very flamboyant and charismatic and some that are just going to be calm or just talking about things. And I think what makes the great trial lawyers are those who recognize the goal, and that is to win. So there are a lot of people who look great and do what I call look good losing, because <laughs> you can look flamboyant and kill a witness or give a great jury address. But if it doesn't help you down what I like to talk about as a path to victory, it's not worth anything. So I've seen people with whole range of skills who blow me away because they get what matters is winning and how to persuade a jury through your intelligence, through your persuasion, through your cleverness that, in fact, you should win. And I've seen people across the spectrum who don't necessarily conform to the stereotype of what people think of as the trial lawyer, the big presence, who are so effective. So I think people who are true to themselves, who have a passion for it, and who don't mind the aggravation, because I say trials are like a drug. For trial lawyers, it's something you want, but they have tremendous side effects, because I don't know that there's anything harder to do, because they require so much. We'll get to all that. Lisa? Well, you know, that is spoken truly the words of a winner, Barry. I agree with both of you. And I think, you know, there's this saying about this is what I was meant to do. And there are those people who are natural communicators for whatever reason. Their mother gave them that fabulous gene. Their father, they come from a family of storytellers. They have that natural ability to message in the courtroom. But I also have seen people who have really, really worked hard at it over the years and grown into themselves and become really good trial lawyers. And I have to say, in all my years of teaching, I always see that natural young person in the courtroom who I go, oh, they got it, but they don't work at it. And they just do it by the seat of their pants and they never advance to the next stage. And so that's the work component to me. You got to do both and work at it and continue to work at it your whole career. I just wanted to say that something Barry said really uh, echoed. I, look, I was a middling trial lawyer at best, but I always wanted to try. And th this feeling of like actually learning, going from a stage, it's palpable, even though a little bit hard to describe from, I'm imitating trial lawyers to like, I'm being me in front of a jury. I think that step is critical. Among the three of you, we've got a lot of defense attorneys and a lot of prosecutors. And when you speak about winning, Barry, <laughs> you know, the case you're down, I'm sure matters a lot. But do you think that those are fundamentally different animals, great prosecutors and great defense lawyers, or it's pretty much the same skill set? I mean, it's really a good question, Harry. I think you know, so <laughs> my background's a little different. I never prosecuted. I started as a federal defender. People told me to go be a prosecutor. It was only a, a very bad president that persuaded me to be a prosecutor twice for both impeachments. <laughs> yeah. But short of that, I felt my natural talent was defending. And I do think they're a different set of skills. I think there are many former prosecutors assistants who I try cases with all the time who are fabulous, who've made the transition, who have all the skill set. Then I think there are other prosecutors whose skills and abilities lend themselves to prosecution, who are passionate, who believe it in their core and aren't so interested or so 
able to make that transition. So I think some really great trial lawyers can do both very well. But I do think there are some who are more inclined and more suited to be prosecutors, who are better suited to stay within the four corners of their case, which you almost have to do as a prosecutor while presenting it in a very effective way. And some of the best prosecutors I've been against and didn't enjoy being against them, I never thought, gee, I think they'll be great on my side. Whereas others, I've welcomed and I've tried cases on the defense side, and that was a seamless transition. So I really think it is personal, but I think you're right to acknowledge, I do think the skill sets differ in part, although there is substantial overlap. Well, you know, for me, I also was never anything other than a defender, and I never wanted to be anything other than a defender. So it is part of the kind of person I am, frankly. I'm an underdog person. I'm always the one who wants to challenge the authority, okay? Challenge the government, make sure they're doing it right. And I come from, I'm a military brat. My father was an officer in the military. So I didn't get that totally naturally, but that's who I am. And so we used to say when I was a defender, and Barry, this probably happened with you, but you You could walk in a room, any room in America with prosecutors and defense lawyers, and you could pick who the prosecutors were and pick who the defense lawyers were. And there is definitely something about that. And it's not good or bad. It's just your lane and where you naturally may fall into it, in my opinion. I will add this as a prosecutor and now former prosecutor. I do think that we're not talking about the levels of the great ones, but prosecutors in particular have some characteristic challenges and characteristic defects. I think (laughs) Leslie's a supervisor. I'm sure you saw this. The 18th. Well, circumstantial evidence means, or I think the case is like a puzzle. You know, they, they really have a different set of exigencies, some of which in part because their cases are so strong, they don't necessarily learn. Let's move to the preparation. Again, a middling trial lawyer at best, but I was always agitating for them. And then I would go into this preparation mode and think, why did I want this so badly? You know, like two or three <laughs> days before trial. There's the great Edward Bennett Williams adage, the great lawyers get don't get tired of the fighting, but of the road work. <laughs> I wonder what your approach to preparation is. It's an inexhaustible task, so you have to make some decisions. But what's those week or two before trial like, and what's your basic approach to sort of boiling down the case, having a theory, et cetera? So I think you have to have, you have to keep your eye on what you're trying to accomplish. You can't, you're not going to be able to present every fact. So let's just say for a minute as a prosecutor, less is often more. And a lot of prosecutors, I think, don't get that. Defense attorneys, I think, are naturally trained to have less be more because they don't maybe want to get into some things. (laughs) And all you need is a reasonable doubt. Exactly. But I think too many people try to prove, as prosecutors, try to prove too much. So what you need to really do is figure out where do we want to go? What message is going to resonate with the jury? What's the jury going to care about? And focus on getting there. And so there's a lot of editing that goes on in terms of what you're going to present. A lot of culling, a lot of, okay, we'll put this off to the side and maybe we'll use it if X happens during the trial. But I think that's super important. And I think that's a skill that a lot of people, frankly, don't have and can develop. But I think that's something, certainly as a prosecutor and as a prosecutor who oversaw a lot of other prosecutors, I would see people do the kinds of things you said, Harry, which is sort of rely on little cliche phrases as opposed to focusing on presenting the case. Because as a prosecutor, it's very important, probably even more than as a defense attorney, to have credibility with the jury. 
because of the reasonable doubt issue. I disagree with that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's important for everyone to have credibility because if you put on a circus show and you lose credibility, I mean, I've had cases where jurors will be taking copious notes when six of the seven defense lawyers would do their crosses. And then the seventh one would stand up and they would throw their clipboards down onto the floor of the jury box because they weren't listening. So you have to have credibility, but you definitely also have to bear in mind, where am I going? And you also have to be able to go with the flow and kind of roll with the punches, which there will be in any trial for both sides. So the question is trial prep. And, you know, I can't imagine there's a lawyer out there who doesn't say, first of all, we're all procrastinators. Our greatest moments come in the 11th hour. Oh, that's excellent. I'm going to change my theory of the case and my theme. But the trial prep to me was always the most miserable time of my life. And I'm a trial lawyer. I've tried hundreds and hundreds of jury trials. I hated it. I was always like, just get me in the courtroom, please. But I recognize exactly what Leslie said. You've got to be the best prepared in the courtroom, period. You've got to be the guiding light for the court. So the judge is looking to you because you know the answers. And even the prosecutor says, oh, I think she actually has that somewhere in her organized discover better than we do. So you become, to me, the guiding light. And that's why, Leslie, I went uh, on the credibility, because I am a huge believer that the defense actually needs more credibility than anyone in that courtroom. We are the one who comes in at a disadvantage. We are the accused. We start behind the eight ball. There must be some evidence here. Why else would you be here? And we have to have credibility because that translates directly to who we represent. I remember being in New York at a program, and I'm not going to name the judge. You all know her. She was a New York judge. And she said to a bunch of female defense lawyers, you know, I think you all can like wear shorter skirts and look a little bit more sexy than the rest of the folks in the courtroom, because it doesn't really matter as much for you as it does for prosecution. And I was so offended. Offended. I said, what are you talking about? We have to be the stalwarts of light. We're telling the truth. And I'm going to look to you toward that. And so, you know, you can say a reasonable doubt. I will tell you, Leslie, it's getting diluted around this country, the instruction on reasonable doubt from the Ninth Circuit to the Seventh Circuit to the Fifth. I mean, it is really changing. And so it is a complicated and strategic position for us to be in. And to me, it has to be my credibility. If I lose one ounce, if I fudge anything, an opening or anything else, that's it. And they won't trust me. So, yeah, I'm a big believer in in the credibility. (laughs) Barry, miserable the week before trial? No. No. Uh, yes. Always the week before, but I like, I like preparation. You just lost your credibility. I like preparation because I like winning, but there are different aspects of it. Some of it, the pick and shovel work drudgery, but you have to do it. To me, preparation is both an art and a science. And I'll tell you a little something about maybe unique about me. I begin every criminal trial that I've ever done ever with a parable, a fable, some tale that captures a moral Principle. You mean you literally begin it in your opening statement? First thing I ever say. It may be an Aesop fable. It may be a Japanese folktale that I've used. I can give, I have a long list. People know them. I tell different ones each time to suit the case. But the notion is they all have an aha moment. And the principle at the end should be the moral lens through which I want them to see the prosecution's evidence. The government gets to go first. As Elisa said, we're at a disadvantage. We've got a guy sitting there. He must be sitting there for a reason, the jury thinks. I want to give them a lens to think about it. And a good fable, a good parable will be on their mind and will hopefully carry them through. But for me, 
I believe in openings, big openings. I can't open until I've come upon my parable. And if I don't have a moral principle, which is the reason why the jury should acquit my client, I got to start talking about a deal. <laughs> but once I hit that, that's the art part. Everything follows. The science is, so I also believe that the moral compass of the trial changes as soon as the cooperator testifies, because then the jury sees, wait a second, the prosecutor made a deal with this guy, and now he's trying to trade his freedom for the defendants. So I believe in cooperator crosses. You mentioned Corey Lewandowski. That was 30 minutes, right? I'm very fortunate. Most of my cases, I have big teams of folks helping me. I'm very lucky. But if you're the one standing up, you got to know it. So I'll have in a cooperator, I've crossed cooperators for four or five days. You're coming with the big binder. Last yeah. opera was a thousand page outline, chapters of chapters of chapters, but I will have gone through it dozens of times with my team over and over and over again till we have every backstop, every statement he's ever used, every piece of evidence our great investigators have found. So whatever he says, we're going to get him, but it's all going through an end. The punchline is not that he's a liar because he's our client's liar. Usually they know him, but that our client's innocent and uh, organize it. So the science is putting all that together every last piece, doing all that hard work, which is crazy. But the art is doing it in a way that the jury is entertained, that they see it, that they're with you, that they don't think you're just beating this guy up for no good reason or this woman up for no good reason, but it's all for a purpose. So the science and the art, it's hard. And I take Lisa's point, it is drudgery. It is not the fun part. But when you get it right and you know you have it, doesn't mean you're going to win, but you know you've done everything possible to give you the best chance to win. And that is a good feeling going in. So yes, it's miserable. But there's never been a trial lawyer who hasn't felt like they needed more weeks to get ready for trial on the prosecution yeah. or defense side. That Those are trials. But when you feel like you're ready to stand up, knowing you have all that work behind you, you know that's how you put yourself in a position you can win. And when I've been against really good defense lawyers, you can feel the jury waiting for them to talk and their attention kind of elevating. My, my two cents here are, first, I totally agree with Leslie. I, it, it wasn't the drudgery. It was just... The panic, the anxiety, the want to throw up 24 hours a day in addition to the hard work. And then second, for what it's worth, I tried, I didn't always have the time to do this, but I, I tried before I did anything else to write my closing argument. And my friend, you know, government at the end has two different closings. So your first summation, I actually tried to know that. It goes to Leslie's point of really paring down and everything being in the service of a theory of the case. So let's move to the big arena now. And being in the trial, Lisa, you said once the trial starts, you feel good. How do you guys generally feel once the trial has started? You know, are you very anxious? Are you in the flow, all of the above? What's the sort of hour-by-hour hour subjective experience for you when you're in trial now? I mean, I think it's an adrenaline rush constantly. So, you know, if you're lucky enough to be in a jurisdiction where you actually get to do attorney-conducted voir dire, I'm always winning. After voir dire, I've won the case. <laughs> they love me. I'm much more interesting, engaged. I've deselected. I'm like feeling good. And then you sit down, opening I love. We know 80% of jurors make up their minds after opening and marshal the facts consistent with the side. Everyone agree with that? That's a controversial theory, but a lot holds. That's it. social science. That's the social science. I would pause. So to subscribe, openings are key. You have to tell a narrative, have to tell a story, have to give the jury the tools to understand it. I still think, particularly in you know, sort of more complicated cases where you got to bring it home in the corporate and then the summation. So when you have to tie it all together and give the path, but if you don't bring them in, in the opening, they're not going to listen in summation. Absolutely, if you don't show yeah. why the witnesses can't be relied on for the case, you're not going to get them. So they're all key, but at the end of the day, you got to bring it home. 
the reason I believe in the open, the 80% of jurors make up their mind is all we got to do is look at our world today. People take sides and they don't listen to the other side. They marshal the facts to reinforce the side they have taken. So it totally makes sense to me. And that's what jurors normally do. I, we all do great closing arguments. I mean, who can't hit it out of the park in a closing case, even on a cold case? And I've tried tons of cold cases. I always got some good stuff to say. But, you know, opening is always a little bit harder because from the defense point of view, there, there is this concern about, do I step into it too much? Do I give the government too much of where I'm going? I don't believe in that. I believe your case is undisputed facts and you go for what you know and you put it out there in the beginning because that is the gaining of credibility. So I love opening. The hardest part for defense lawyers, and I agree with Barry, I love to win Barry. I've tried a lot of ugly state cases, ugly, not just white collar where nobody's getting killed or sexually assaulted and all the things I've had to deal with. I got some of those really ugly ones. So when the facts begin to come in, those are the nights I go home and I go, okay, they weren't talking about you or anyone you know, they were talking about the case. And it is very emotionally draining, I think, on those kind of cases. I can deal with long eight-week white-collar cases much easier emotionally than I can the ugly facts cases of street crime, we call it, or, you know, just regular criminal cases. So, and then closing's great. And then waiting for a jury, to me, I bet you Leslie and Barry said the same thing, Harry, right? It's the worst part of a trial. Yeah, (laughs) that is the worst part. And for me, once I step into the courtroom, even for just jury selection, much less for the opening, I'm on an adrenaline flow for the rest of the trial, whether it's a one-week trial in a drug case or you know, a three-month RICO trial or a three-month big white-collar case. But then I totally collapse once the jury's verdict comes in, not out of anger or depression, but just because I let go of all my energy. And it's always been fascinating to me how dramatic that was. For me, I guess, to use a sports analogy, it was like being in the game, playing and being totally focused for the whole trial, including the motions that you have to draft the night before some argument on some issue that's arisen. But then at the end, just like crashing. I completely agree with both Leslie and Lisa. I I will tell you, there's an expression my colleague phrased when we were trying a case that was going very well. It's like the superhero expression when you feel like you see the bullets. Exactly. Because it slowed down so much already, you can see the bullets. And so I, I feel the same adrenaline rush, it's great. And I will tell you though, there's a downside. And I like boxing. If you can see behind me, there's a picture of my great-grandfather, one fight away from the late weight championship of the world. He taught me how to fight. So I like boxing analogies. And Mike Tyson had the best line, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. Yes. And if you're a criminal defense lawyer, you always get punched in the face. There's always something. And just like in boxing, when you get punched in the gut or face, you want to bend over, that's when you're supposed to counterpunch. So that happens at every trial and you have to have it. So it's a lot of adrenaline, a lot of positive. But the hard part is when things don't go according to plan, either your witness, their witness, and how do you recover? You know, let's go with that. So we know that Perry Mason moments generally don't happen in real life, but surprise testimony certainly can for both sides. Do you recall a Mike Tyson moment, any of the three of you, where you just had to, you know, suck it up and not throw up in front of the jury? I mean, I will tell you, this is again... 
going to tell a story that makes me look better. So I'll tell you it anyway. Yeah. We were trying a big case. It was what the government described as the greatest tax shelter case in the history of the government. It was a really tough case. There were a bunch of lawyers from a big law firm and some bankers. My client was one of the bankers. And we had to persuade a jury that it was okay for people who had these huge wealth events and made tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars not to pay taxes because of a legal and financial scheme our guys came up with. It was a hard sell to hardworking New Yorkers who pay taxes. But we had a path and our client was sort of hopefully not going to be a focus. And on the eve of trial, one of the lawyers made a cooperation deal. Mm. And the principal person he dealt with was our client. So this trial, which was going on for a long time with five defendants, was all of a sudden going to be on our client. Very challenging. And our defense, though, was that these lawyers, this lawyer in particular, was so persuasive to all these clients that our client was persuaded. So it was a Mike Tyson moment. Our whole year of prep was thrown out the window. It came down to this one lawyer. He'd take the stand. He's a very impressive guy. Didn't know what to do. Thought about it. Like, the jury has to see him in action. Because now he's just saying how awful this was, how bad it was. Clearly, it's illegal. How can anyone avoid taxes over tens of hundreds of millions of dollars? So I got the judge to agree. He allowed me to do a cross-examination with something a little different. I had a red handkerchief. And I said to the lawyer, I said, I mean, to the lawyer witness, I cooperator who pled guilty, when I put the handkerchief in my pocket, I don't want you to treat me as Barry Burke, the lawyer. I want you to treat me as Barry Burke, a real estate developer who just made a, a huge killing and wants to avoid taxes. And he would start and he wasn't really doing it because he was cooperating. He was trying to help the government. And then I'd cross-examine him about his prior statements. And I was going and I was just about thinking this was the dumbest idea I've ever had in trial because I have no control. He's going to do it. And then I keep going deep on one last. The judge said, Mr. Burke, this is a little unconventional. And I said, no, so why should I do this? What? Why, how can I avoid taxes? And he all of a sudden goes into this pitch. And it was beautiful because <laughs> he really got into the mode. It was so persuasive. As one of my co-counsel of our co-defendant said, she had a tear in her eye. <laughs> and it was really just because that was the truth. And it was what he did. And the jury got to see it. And in that trial, what should have been the worst moment turned out to be the best. And our client was the only defendant acquitted of 30-odd counts or whatever it was, a, a big number of counts in that trial. There were a lot of other issues that, that affected that trial later on. But it showed me, again, it's the notion of how do you recover? Because I do think I came to learn what seemed to be the worst moment in the case gave us the greatest opportunity and helped us to distinguish our client in a way that was different than the other defendants. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't have a bad moment? I, I tend to flush them. And I think what's really interesting, and I don't know if Leslie would agree with me on this, and I talked to you as another female litigator, Leslie, because I feel like men can recall like all the specifics of trials and what they said and the wins and all of this stuff. And I'm like, I don't remember. I don't remember what was, I mean, I just don't, it's very interesting to me when I talk to male lawyers and female lawyers, but I will say, I also have had a number of those kind of moments. I mean, who doesn't? And I had a, it was a tax case. My favorite kind of case is to try. And my client, was lucky enough to have me, but there were two other defendants who were sovereign citizens. And anyone who dealt with sovereign citizens knows they're very difficult in terms of compliance with the rules of the courtroom or anything else. <laughs> and so I would spend all of this time in very detailed and good cross-examinations. My client was the accountant in this overall scheme, but I had a good faith basis of good faith reliance on a lawyer who had told him to do things. And I had these great cross-examinations, but every time I would finish with an agent or whoever, the sovereign citizens who were pro se would get up and undo 
everything that I had worked so hard to do. And that recovery was very hard for me. I mean, I'll just never forget. The judge would look at me like, do something. And I would be like, what am I supposed to do? And they wouldn't follow the rules. And the judge kept holding them in contempt all the time. It was a miserable experience. And the client had a really decent defense, at least in my trial psychosis mind at the time, but it was impossible to deal with pro se clients. And Leslie probably knows that as a prosecutor. They're the hardest kind of cases. That's horrible. And I'll say, Lisa, it's not your memory that's bad. You just don't suffer from the same inflated ego that helps some of our, us men you know, catalog all our wins. Notice I haven't remembered any losses or any of the miserable fails I've had in court. <laughs> Can I follow up on just that, please? Because so my mom was a trial lawyer. She was a good trial lawyer. She was a very early pioneer trial lawyer and she got like, you know, pinched on the butt and stuff. I wonder if Barry and I take a step back. You know, it's a, for lack of a better word, kind of a macho role being a, you know, a hotshot trial lawyer. Mm -hmm. What particular challenges do you find for being a woman lead trial lawyer? And do you find you have to you know, do the equivalent of Ginger Rogers does everything as Fred Astaire except backwards and in heels? Or in this day and age, have you mainly been able to put that factor to the side? So I think things have evolved significantly since I started my career, for example, as an AUSA in the Eastern District of New York many years ago. I remember being called Missy by a defense attorney in the middle of a trial in front of a jury. He said something like, listen, Missy, and things like that. I haven't seen that in a long time, but you're right. There still is kind of a macho swaggering thing. And I think a lot of clients, particularly white collar clients, Mm -hmm. ironically, in my experience, get sucked in by that. They want that macho swaggering man Mm -hmm. who's going to like tear up the courtroom as opposed to perhaps a more low key or less swaggering woman. And I, I find it somewhat fascinating because I think a lot of clients don't understand The things that really work in the courtroom are not necessarily the loudness of your voice Mm -hmm. or the bluster bravado with which you swagger into the courtroom or what you're wearing in terms of some super expensive tailor-made suit. I think things have changed a lot. I'm curious, Lisa, what you think, but it's it's a lot different. I think, first of all, there are a lot more women in the courtroom now, lawyers on both sides, including in civil litigation and judges. And I think that's naturally evolved the atmosphere. So. I think it's changed a lot, but I think there still is probably particularly, maybe not even particularly in criminal law. I was about to say that, but that may not be true. I think there still is a bias among clients that men would be better choices as a trial lawyer than women. Yeah, That's obviously not across the board, but I think that's just sort of generally. And I think men continue to sort of sell that, maybe not mm-hmm. overtly, but I think they definitely continue. Like you want somebody tough, somebody who's not going to be afraid to fight. And women, I'm sure Lisa's not afraid to fight, and I'm sure you can be as tough as they come, but you may not present that way when you introduce yourself to a potential client. No, I think that's true. So I think it has evolved. And look, I come from two places, and that is I'm a Black woman, and there are very few of us at all anywhere around the country. So whenever I would go to federal court in different districts, including my own district in the 10th Circuit, I was always the only one, period and still am the only one in many, many places. And so my race was put first before the woman part, 
because that was what I had to deal with was the racism. And that was really interesting in a man's world of being a litigator. I mean, it still is in many ways, Leslie. Like you said, I think it has changed, but there is this machismo kind of perception. And it drives me crazy because the media drives that. You yeah. know, better call Saul. <laughs> and, you know, when you think about who are the best criminal defense lawyers, it's always men. And I'm like, really? Because some of the best lawyers I know, hands down, trial lawyers are women, yeah. period. But they're not making movies about them. They're not writing books about us. They're they're not quoting, you know, the great things that we do. And it's very interesting. And that perception continues. The other thing is there is a high dropout rate and that is factual. So a lot of us don't last because we decide we do want to step back because we have families and we still are the caregivers and we still are in charge. Even in this very liberated, progressive world we live in, we're the ones who have to make those choices. So the ABA did a study on this and showed how there was like this 10-year, then we dropped back and we're gone for 15 years, 20 years raising our kids. Then we try to come back and make an inroad back. So there are few of us who have had the ability to stay with it throughout consistently. And I think that also makes a big, big difference. Yeah. And that's an issue across the legal profession, obviously, and at law firms yeah. and, and every yeah. other area of the legal practice. Harry, can I offer a rebuttal? No, I'm kidding. No, 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 no <laughs> rebuttal. No. I'm like, wait, no, no. what the heck is he going to say? <laughs> I just want to raise one quick point. This is actually far afield, but when I think back to the prosecutor of defense, really big difference is just having a client or not. That both emotional relationship and their trust or not in you, that's, I, I think, a huge difference in pressure. I've had some, you know, done some defense work, and that's a game changer. Sorry. Barry Burke, not a woman. <laughs> no, I was joking. I'm not offering okay. a rebuttal. I completely agree with everything Leslie and Lisa said, and there should be more change and faster change of the greatest lawyers I know are women. But more than that, jurors want to hear from people who look like them, mm -hmm. right? The best teams are those teams that have a t are completely diverse, you know, gender, race, everything. And I think increasingly that's happening. And I was getting ready to try a case with my partner, Danny James, who she's wonderful. She was going to give the opening in the case. It was perfect. And it's great to have that. And not only is it the right thing, but it's also the way to win. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, increasingly we're seeing more and more of people recognizing that and the world, the world is changing as it should. But I, I completely concur that some of the most effective and best lawyers are women. And I will say the idea of this blustery call Saul, I see it all the time. There are lawyers out there mostly men who have one gear, gear five. And gear five can be great. You're not winning any, any races with just gear five, right? You need a lot of different gears. You're not killing every witness. You got to have other ways, other skills and the like. And oftentimes, frankly, some of the women trial lawyers I know are the best at using all those skills and having that range in a way that a lot of the traditional male big trial lawyers don't have. Yeah. And in my mom's case, getting up and still making the lunches, God bless her. I, I miss her every day. One quick thing, because all of you have really stressed how much you love to win. <laughs> and I'm sure you hide it well during trial. But uh, how do you feel about your opponent during it? Do you wind up sort of hating them? How do you channel, because you can't display that in the courtroom, your intense, you know, competitive fuel while still, you know, maintaining the professional role of a truth seeker, et cetera, that the jury puts confidence in? For me, I've always gotten along with almost all of my adversaries. Uh -huh. And I think for me, that's also one of the things that attracted me to criminal law as opposed to civil litigation. Mm -hmm. Because first of all, it's a smaller subset of people. You see a lot of the same people over and over again. So if you act like a jerk and alienate them, it may come back to haunt you and vice versa. 
I definitely have had a handful of folks on either side, both prosecutors and defense attorneys, who I thought were annoying. Assholes is the legal term, maybe? <laughs> that would be it. That would be one term for it. But, you know, I definitely try to hide that. And I, I was never one to engage and never one to personalize. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important. I think if you ask my adversaries, whether they be prosecutors or defense attorneys, they would say the same thing about me. And I think that's a useful skill because if you allowed yourself to get emotionally invested with personal animosity or rage, at least for me with my personality, that would have been a negative thing. I completely agree with Lisa. There's the old saying, which isn't entirely true, but that criminal lawyers act civilly and civil lawyers act criminally. (laughs) And there's a reason for it, for the reasons Leslie described. I generally get along with my adversaries and become fast friends afterwards. It's hard in the heat of battle. I think if people fight hard, I respect that. When people are unfair, I remember that. But I also know that at trial when you know my adversaries, typically prosecutors, are misbehaving, that hurts their case. Yes. When they're doing it straight down the middle, not overstating it, that's often the strongest adversary to face. But I think you know it's important for everyone not to make it personal. Yeah. I'm always surprised sometimes when people do take it personally. It's not personal. You know, it's interesting, though, because I feel like I'm a pretty tempered person. And Leslie probably thinks I'm a very nice person on this call. But I have to say there have been times, look, you got someone's life in your hands. I've done plenty of life cases. And I take it very seriously when I'm trying to save someone's life. It's not a game to me. It's not a joke. And there have been very tense times in my career with the prosecutor who I have made it a general rule. I have prosecutors that I am friendly with, but I am not friends with any of them. And there's a reason for that for me was if I have to make a hard call in the courtroom on a case, on calling someone out for process misconduct or something they've done, I don't want to have to err on the side of friendship. I want to err on the side of the clients, um, what I'm doing on behalf of the clients. So I can't say that I've been like Barry and Leslie the whole time, and maybe it's the kind of cases But again, when you have some young kids' life in your hands and you believe that they're innocent, in Colorado, sexual assaults are lifetime sentences. And I've represented a lot of college kids. It's hard when you got a cheating prosecutor not to get a little angry at times and to lose your temper. So one of my mentors always said, just look at them and laugh. But I couldn't always do that. (laughs) It was tough. I agree. If the other side is cheating or being dishonest, particularly if it's the prosecutor, whose job is not to win, but to make sure that the right just result occurs. And I think most prosecutors do believe that, but at least in the federal system where I have spent most of my time. But I I just think that you don't have to pal around with your adversaries or go out for drinks with them, but I think it's good to have a positive relationship because you're likely to see them again. Absolutely. Listen, I totally get Lisa's point rather on this, and I totally agree in the sense that you're representing, I like to think of, we specialize in the unjustly accused, at least that's how it feels. And you take that personally. And so we think about, I get asked about this a lot because we have had a lot of success litigating grand jury abuse issues recently, getting, you know, the head of the FBI white collar group in New York criminally investigated for grand jury leaks we proved all the time and raised pretty hard issues that could jeopardize people's careers and raise real issues. You have to do it. It's not personal. It's the office. It's the case. Mm-hmm. If the conduct happens, and I think increasingly you're seeing judges paying more attention to it. I take Lisa's point, particularly in very different types of cases, but you can, I think, 
hit as hard as you possibly can. And if you don't make it personal, right? I, I, I tend not to refer to the government because I think that gives more power. I tend not refer to individual names unless it's necessary to identify who it is, but it's the prosecutor, the prosecution team and what they did. And when there's grand jury abuse, that's what you call it. <laughs> when there's you know, discovery misconduct, that's what you call it. So I think you get hit hard. And Lisa's right though, it is a challenge to be able to fight as hard as you can for your client to not make it personal. As Leslie said, it's an institutional relationship. You can never sacrifice what you, if there's something you have to do for your client, but you don't need to make it more personal than you do. And I completely agree with both that that is one of the challenges when you're in the heat of battle and everybody is going to win on both sides. And now a word from our sponsor, the American Civil Liberties Union. Hello, I'm Leah Watson, Senior Staff Attorney for the ACLU's Racial Justice Program. State lawmakers and school boards across the country are trying to silence discussions about race and gender in our classrooms through discriminatory censorship measures like Florida's so-called Stop Woke Act. The ACLU and its partners sued to block enforcement of this law in higher education, and a federal judge delivered a resounding victory, preliminarily ruling that the Florida law violated the First and Fourteenth Amendments. This win recognizes that the Stop Woke Act restricts the free and open exchange of ideas related to race in our classrooms. The censored discussions erase the history of marginalized individuals. The ACLU is committed to defending our right to learn. We will continue to fight unconstitutional attempts to silence instruction about Black and brown people, women and girls, and LGBTQ plus individuals. Learn more at aclu.org censorship. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thanks, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we whip through the whiskeys to find out the difference between the three main types, scotch, bourbon, and rye. Whiskey, spelled without an E, is produced in Scotland and Canada, whereas whiskey, spelled with an E, means it's produced in the U.S. and Ireland and includes scotch, bourbon, and rye. It's these grains that help define which type of whiskey it will become before it eventually lands among the thousands of bottles on the shelves at your local Total Wine & More. Now, let's talk about scotch. Scotch is typically made from malted barley, blended with other grains, and that helps give it a little bit of a bite, making it more in an acquired taste. Bourbon must be made from at least 51% corn, produced in the U.S. and aged in new charred oak barrels. The oak gives this brown liquid its signature sweet flavor. And then there's rye, which must be made from at least, yep, you guessed it, 51% rye. Rye is a type of grass in the wheat family that has a spicy, edgier flavor, adding a little extra kick you may not find in a bourbon. For a true test of bourbon versus rye, we recommend you pop into Total Wine, maybe grab a bottle of scotch while you're here. But to really get to know the differences in scotch, bourbon, and rye, start by talking to the guides at Total Wine and More, who are more than happy to talk day or night about whiskey, with or without an E. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. 
All right, let's spend a few minutes then leaving court after the battle. The heat is gone, but you don't know the results. So Leslie, it struck me as saying that was the worst part of trial when a jury is deliberating. I wonder, uh, Lisa and Bear, do you agree? And I mean, you have a pretty good sense, do you not, of how your case went in? And is your discomfort, anxiety, or whatever you feel then, does it vary much according to how the case has been? Or is it just a time after all the hard work where you just come crashing down sort of no matter what? (laughs) So it's a loss of control. We're control freaks, right? I mean, that's what trial lawyers, we like to be able to control things. So at that point, when I hand my case over to the jury, I have no control. I can only hope they're listening to what I said in closing and the instructions and all that, but it's a loss of control. And so I stay at the courthouse. I sit outside. I can't work. I mean, you all have tried to go back to your offices and do other things. It's very difficult. For me, it is. Eight weeks of unreturned (laughs) phone calls. Oh, my gosh. It's like it's just a pile up and you just sit there like a zombie. Every phone call, you're waiting for them to call, right? You're on the edge of your seat. And I sit there and watch them as they come out for cigarette breaks trying to see, can I take anything from who's with who, what groups are with who. I read all of those kind of jury signs. And I don't know, Harry, when you say you have a good feeling, I've tried many a case, difficult, difficult case, and won them and been completely surprised. Tried what I thought were great cases, hung them and thought, why are they hanging? There was clearly so much reasonable doubt. So I don't think it's so easy. I mean, I've heard people say, oh, you know, you did a great job. You're going to win. And I'm very superstitious. I'm like, don't say it. You're going to you're going to curse me. I don't want to talk about it. And I really believe that Um, until that verdict comes in and they're looking at me and say, not guilty. I'm a mess. I'm a mess. And imagine the clients, how they're feeling. And usually if you're in a complicated case, there are multiple counts. And I think on either side, you care more about some of the counts than the others, and you're more confident in the outcome of some of the counts than the others. So when I was a prosecutor, I did a very high-profile murder case involving the murder of a New York City police officer who was killed as he sat outside the home of a witness in a drug case guarding the house. And we charged the leader of a drug organization who had ordered the murder from prison with all sorts of things. He was charged with RICO, including narcotics counts other kinds of violent counts, and the murder of the police officer. And that was honestly the only count I cared about. Of course, I stupidly made it count 11 of 11. Mm -hmm. So we had to sit there and wait for the first 10 counts, most of which I thought, I knew there was going to be guilty on narcotics conspiracy because it was overwhelming evidence and a bunch of the other counts. But the murder of the police officer was the one where we really, that was the whole point of the case, was that this guy had ordered the execution-style murder of a uniformed police officer in a marked police car. And the jury did convict, but it was unbelievably nerve-wracking to sit there as they were going through. Because first they had to go through all the RICO predicates. You mean, while they were deliberating. I always, when I was in my very first trials as a baby prosecutor doing easy drug cases, easy from the prosecutor's perspective, you know, like by busts, I was a basket case when the jury was deliberating. Yeah. I couldn't, I, just like you, Lisa, I couldn't work. I couldn't think. I couldn't return phone calls. I couldn't do anything else. But as the cases get bigger and more complicated, I found myself focusing and obsessing about how good was our proof and our presentation about the counts that we really care about. 
And same thing on the defense side. It's, you know, certain counts are going to have much more serious consequences for your client than others. And so it would be great to get a straight acquittal, but you really, really want to win certain counts. Yeah, I got a pit in my stomach just hearing Leslie and Lisa talk about trials because that's how I feel. And I am in a state of total paralysis, except when something happens, when there's a note from the juror, all of a sudden I became, if anyone's a Homeland fan, like Carrie, putting together the conspiracy <laughs> of all the terrorists. Oh, that note ties to, remember that when that witness had to get excused and, the, 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 and I have it all figured out, then the end said, of course, we're making it up because we read tea leaves and don't know what any of it means. And then I go back into a state of paralysis. And that continues again and again. I don't care the trial. I don't care how well I thought we did. You just never know what jurors are going to do. And you're crazy. Now, I made a mistake because the one thing that has always proven true is when a jury is going to acquit. In a criminal case, they come out and they look you right in the eye and they acquit your client completely. And when they don't, they want to look anywhere else but your back. When they don't look room. in the eye, right? And I made the mistake. I tried a case, high-profile case, White collar case, client didn't think did anything wrong. The judge in the case, I believed, I, I told the client and his family, they understood that screwed up because he didn't tell the jury our defense was a defense. So we're gonna, it was gonna get reversed. There was no way this case was gonna continue, whatever they did. But I still thought we killed the cooperator, we presented a compelling case, we were in the game. But I told them the story. Don't ask me why. We were waiting. We were all very close. If the jury doesn't look at you, it's a bad sign. So there's a verdict. After many notes, the juror comes out, they're looking anywhere else. He stands. He totally passes out before there's a verdict, <laughs> just based on the fact that, that the uh, uh, jurors were looking, totally passed out. They had to interrupt everything, take him to the back. It was crazy. And the jury did convict, although then promptly we got the entire case not only reversed, but dismissed, no crime. So he um, he recovered. And uh, but it was a good story for anyone watching. Don't ever tell your clients that. Right. Maybe what just happens at deliberation is you just having had such self-discipline all those times, you just kind of let it go and you revert to your natural personality. I think maybe the best guy I ever saw as a prosecutor was Stephen Clymer. Yeah, he's uh, great. Who was in L.A. now is in Buffalo. And he tried the Rodney King case, which I worked on a bit. And it really struck me because I thought he killed in that case, did a fantastic job. But during deliberations, he was really thinking, we're going to lose, we're going to lose. And it just struck me that's that was his mindset. It wasn't, you know, you sort of let it all go after holding it together so long. All right. Something you just said, Barry, really strikes me as a good closeout question or, or th thing to think about, which is you never know what a jury is going to do, et cetera. Based on your experience, and obviously it depends on how lopsided the case is, but how much of the outcome in a jury trial do you think is determined by excellent lawyering as opposed to, you know, facts, circumstances, or even whether juror five is friendly with juror six or whatever? Do you think it's lawyering versus sort of everything else? Have you acquired opinions about that over your long careers? I, for one, think Lisa or Leslie should answer that because you don't want someone to answer that with the ego first. <laughs> In my experience, I think all those things matter that you just said, Harry, but I think jurors really do take to heart, at least in the cases that I've been involved in, they do seem to take to heart their job, which is to try to reach a consensus that makes sense. And, you know, this may be changing to refer back to something Lisa said earlier about our increasingly divided country with people sort of gathering facts that support their existing views. But in, in my experience, I think that good lawyering can make a difference for sure on both sides. Bad lawyering can make a difference on both sides. 
I think that the most important thing, though, it really is the evidence. And obviously, the legal instructions can be very important in some cases. I think that jurors generally get it right, even if they're compromising. I personally haven't seen too many juries who just got it totally wrong. Or if they did get it totally wrong, it was for some reason that maybe wasn't their fault. Like maybe somebody gave a bad instruction or somebody completely lost credibility or the defendant was a person who just was so awful that they would look for some way to convict of something. As opposed to a Pied Piper performance by a dazzling lawyer. Exactly, exactly. I think it, you know, it obviously can help, but I don't think that that's the difference maker in most cases. I think it's a combination as well. And I look at jury selection like a chess game. It's such a strategic, thoughtful process that you really want to take your time on. And lawyering obviously makes a difference. And we know that because we see people who are exonerated. I mean, the system work, you wouldn't have what we see, the thousands of exonerations. And that's not just state court, that's federal court as well. So there's a lot of problems in the legal criminal system. Systemic racism is one of them, mass incarceration, minimum mandatories, the lack of people going to trial. So trial penalty is a real problem in this country. And that is the defendant's ability to challenge the government and not be punished when they do. All of us who have had the ability to be in this for a long time, young lawyers are never going to have the trials that we had. It's just not going to happen. They don't get the trials anymore. At least criminal, criminal lawyers. Yeah, yeah, criminal trials. And it's something that we're really trying to fix, but it's really a problem in this country. I can say I've had almost 200 jury trials. That's just never going to happen again. And so, you know, there are a lot of issues that have occurred. And I think it is a combination of lawyering. I think the more trial experience you have, the gutsier you you are of challenging the evidence, challenging the government, the better reputation you have. The government sees you and says, oh God, there's Leslie, there's Barry, they're on this case. I'm going to actually have to work. That matters <laughs> because they know your reputation, right? I love being a pain in the ass. That's a compliment to me. And it certainly translates to a benefit to my clients. So it's a big combination. And if you got it going on, and I, I feel like I'm in the room with people who got it going on. Boy, are those clients lucky. And don't we wish everybody in this country could have that kind of representation. It'd be a very different world. Amen, Lisa. Listen, some of the best lawyers in this country are the public defenders who toil away, but they need to have the resources and also the manageable caseload so they can present the sort of defense they can. And for people without the resources to hire their own counsel and who are assigned counsel, we do need to make sure the resource is there because that makes the difference that justice is actually justice and not just us for the public defenders. For me, I think in the sort of cases we're talking about here, you need a triable case. I always say we can't go back in time and change the facts. But if there's a triable case, I do think lawyers of all sorts, bring a different range of skills, can really help to identify the, the path to victory, figure out the best way to go down that path, how to remove obstacles. And while there are a lot of factors that go into what a jury does, the judge, how the judge communicates to the jury, not just the charge, but most jurors like the judge. Judges generally are good with jurors. How do they convey that they're responding to the prosecution, to the defense, to witnesses? they can have a huge impact. What your jury looks like, a lot of luck about what the jury pool looks like. Can they give your guy a fair shot? 
And then things that are often out of your control, the deals that are made with cooperators who are hedging the truth for their own. But putting all that aside, I do think having lawyers who are trained, who are given the opportunity to really do everything possible to tell their narrative in an effective way, that could be the key to really evening the playing field to make sure the results are just. And part of that has to do not just with the skill of the lawyer, but also the laws that you know have developed in a way that tends to favor the prosecution in certain ways. There's no reason not to have early discovery so everybody can know more about what the case is, in most cases where there's no risk to harm to the witness and all the like. So I do think that your question touches on a whole range of reforms that some of which we're seeing movement to, but that are important to make sure, particularly in criminal cases, that the defense lawyers have the ability to meet the evidence and present the strongest case possible. So the jury can really have the fairness of both sides and give full voice to reasonable doubt, presumption of innocence and the like. And I think there are real challenges to that today that have nothing to do necessarily with the individual skill of the lawyers, but the overall restrictions that are put on the defense function even today. All right. And there's an end for now. We have time just for one or two minutes. Oh, you guys may not know our final feature of Talking Five, where we frame a question for you that you have to answer in five words or fewer. Having avoided his name this entire time, we're going to return for the last 60 seconds to one Donald Trump and ask this question. In any of the cases, any way in the world, he takes the stand? I would say that I'm only five words. I just wasted three of them. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I'll just add one more. Uh, No, I don't think he takes the stand. Absolutely, yes, he's a narcissist. Wow. Tiebreaker, Mr. Burke? Shameless is a shameless does. Yes. Wow. Got to have a tie here. I guess it's our prosecutor uh, stripe showing. No way in the world! We're out of time. Thank you very much to Leslie, Barry, and Lisa. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to this special episode of Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we post daily video content breaking down legal developments in the news. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and the spirit moves you to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com whether it's for Talking Five or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry. As long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen. Sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Rhea Cohen-Gilbert, Emma Maynard, and Kalena Tano. Special thanks to Tim Mocked for his help on this episode. And our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Fez is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.